Welcome to another episode of Econopolitics. Hi, I'm Joseph Marks in Los Angeles, and I'll be your co-host for today's show. And I'm Fabrizio Chagas Bastos in Sao Paulo. Econopolitics is the official podcast of LASA's economics and politics section, where we engage section members, international practitioners, and new voices from Latin America. We're delighted to have Diego Sanchez Ancochea with us today. As many of you may know, Diego is the head of the Department of International Development at Oxford, and he specializes in the political economy of development and Latin America development, and has just published a brand new book by Bloomsbury, The Costs of Inequality in Latin America, Warning and Lessons for the Rest of the World. Welcome, Diego. Great to see you, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for having me. Perhaps we should begin with a brief summary of the two or three main arguments of the book. Yes, yeah, so um, I, I decided to write the book because I was actually not looking at Latin America, but looking at places like where you are, Joseph, at the moment, the US, uh, the country I live in, the UK, and realizing that they, they had growing inequality with concentration at the top uh, that actually was very familiar for those of us, like both of you that work in Latin America, right? Um, having the top 1% having a growing part of resources is something that our region, the region we study, knows for a long, long time. So, so I actually thought, actually, we should encourage those people living in these countries to look at our region and understand better what are the, the, the cost of having that type of political economy. And, and then I, I have chapters on what are the economic cost of concentration, where I try to say this is what has happened in Latin America, for example, in terms of not insufficient innovation or insufficient uh, ed good education for everyone. And then at the end of that chapter, I say, look, and this is something that is becoming increasingly evident also in the global north. This is not no longer a Latin American problem. I do the same with the political and the issues around populism and with the social sphere and issues around race uh, and around um, urban segmentation. I think one thing that is exciting that I was writing a book that was only about problems. And then a couple of friends encouraged me to think about Latin America also as a source of solutions. Um, and then I have a chapter that I'm very excited about in which I discuss how, I think because Latin America was always so unequal, but also more democratic than other parts of the global South, has had ideas, things like structuralism or the theology of liberation, has also have actors or social movements like the landless movement that tells us a lot of lessons about how to fight that inequality. So at the end, it's a book about how Latin America is a warning in terms of um, how inequality is very costly, but also very permanent. But it's also a book about how the region teaches something about how to think about fighting it. Great. Whenever we discuss inequality, the issue of taxation always comes up. Why is it so difficult to develop progressive and more equitable tax codes to tax the rich? For example, yesterday or today, I think in the news, Argentina is proposing, for example, the new wealth tax. Uh, I think there have been attempts in the past, but um, what is the intrinsic difficulty of trying to make the tax code more equitable, more progressive? I think it's at the end a combination of three forces, probably. The first is the, the, is the power of the elites, right? So the book 
is a lot about the power of the economic elite. Tasha Fairfield, another member of, of our community, has shown that very clearly for the case of Chile and Argentina, how um, the elite uses all kinds of instruments and not just uh, money, but also ideas, how it has built a whole ideological setting around the cost and the negativity of taxes. So I think that's the first. The second is the weakness of the state itself, the incapacity of uh, the state to implement some of those policies or to put into practice even the policies that, that exist. And the third is that the middle class, instead of realizing how much it can gain from some of these progressive taxes, it tends to see it as a problem. And it buys many of the arguments that the thin tanks funded by the elites um, pay. I think you were saying, Joseph, I think with all reason about Argentina, it just passed actually the, the wealth tax in both um, Congress and Senate. And I'm more excited about it, not in terms of ideologies, in terms of shifting debates, that in terms of the actual income. I think that the actual income that it, it will generate the wealth tax will be small, but I have some hope that it will start reversing this idea that being modern is about having low taxes instead of the idea that I think we should develop that being modern is about having progressive taxes. Right, right. So looking at the region specifically, where has inequality actually worsened over the last uh, few years and why? So um, as it, it might be better to start with the whole region. So actually inequality, as most of the audience will know, went down between 2003 and 2015, 16, uh, across the region with the exception of Costa Rica and the exception probably of Colombia uh, and Honduras, depending on the data. And Costa Rica is a good example on your question. Um, first, why the gains? I think the gains were a lot about the combination of democratic institutions, the commodity boom, um, and those two things together, and, and we might want to discuss that later, why Costa Rica was not nearly as successful uh, in a way because of the political paralysis and because of uh, an economic model um, that creates very clear winners but not enough compensation. And the last question on all of this is what is happening today? And I think we run the risk of losing much of the gains from the last two decades because of the combination of the COVID and the type of politics that we see across the region. Diego, let me pick the last part of the title of your book, Lessons for the Rest of the World. As you said, this is very important to see the knowledge produced in the region. So um, could you give us a bit of a sense of the lessons for the rest of the world in Latin America? can give about inequality and about the thinking of inequality as well as part of this, this big global history that we, we've seen over the past years. So I think one of the, so in addition to, as I said, that inequality is uh, multidimensional, right? That there are not just, this is not an economic phenomena, but uh, with social, political and economic consequences. For me, one of the key lessons, one of the key warnings uh, if I can use the other word of the of the title of the subtitle, is the um, a structural um, nature that creates vicious circles. So it's the idea that when you have high inequality, that creates a lot of costs that lead to the perpetuation of inequality over time. So let me give you just one example. I think high inequality and concentration at the top 
means that there are not incentives to promote high quality education uh, because the elite doesn't need and doesn't have incentives to do that. But the lack of high quality education leads to uh, a very uh, lack of economic dynamism that feeds back into informality and low growth in the long run. And I think those are vicious circles that as soon as you have very high inequality are easily to perpetuate over the long run. And some of you, again, will say, well, what does that have to do with the US? Well, I think in the US, we increasingly see an, an education system that is increasingly unequal and of low quality because of that high concentration. And we could see if we, if we are not careful in the next 20 years, that same vicious circle of inequality. Then the positive lessons are about, for example, the lessons about social movements. So I think some of the most exciting social movements in the world, from the Lazarus movement to the um, a, a student movement in Chile, are, are in, based in Latin America. And they are exciting because they have been extremely successful at linking very short-term demands from the bottom, more land or better uh, cheaper tickets for transportation with a macro understanding of the world. And that link is some that not other social movements do well in other parts of the world. Thank you, Diego. I was saying that Michael Sando has a great book about meritocracy that would talk perfectly with what you, you say about the US. Um, you mentioned Chile, Colombia, and Mexico um, around I didn't improve these questions. So um, let me ask you, Chile, Colombia, and Mexico have joined the OECD. Has this any positive effect on the reduction in inequality in these countries? It hasn't, and I think it's, it's, it has a lot to do with the issue of ideas and ideology that Joseph mentioned before, right? Um, and the OECD, despite having some very exciting work on inequalities, is responsible of anything. So being part of the rich group countries has actually normally been about growth, about having transparent institutions, about having uh, free trade, about having things that not all developed countries have, right? That's how you Chan showed in kicking away the ladder. Instead of being about what some of the European countries show, which is being wealthy and modern, it's about having a welfare state and high taxation. So in a way, I would make the OECD responsible for having just developed only half of the story about why rich countries are rich. And I would hope, and I think one of the, our tasks as academics, but also about people that care about policy, is to change narratives about what being modern is. We should actually not accept the, the narrative that being modern is about free trade or the, regulate, the regulating labor market. We should actually say that in the world, being modern has been about developing ambitious welfare states versus based on universal policies. And that being modern is as much about being Sweden as being this uh, paradise of free markets. So perhaps instead of the Chicago boys, we need next some sort of Oxford boys looking for um, <laughs> questions on welfare state. And I think that's where um, Piketty's work is so exciting, right? Indeed, so, indeed. Um, maybe it's the Paris school boys. 
uh, is that <laughs> he's not just he's truly shifting narratives. I mean, from an economic perspective, you could claim that his models are too neoclassical, all you would you want, but he has been has the extreme potential of changing narratives about what being a good society is. Indeed, indeed. Piketty's work is fantastic. Let me shift a bit the angle. I know in Latin America, we're very state-centered sometimes, but let me shift it to the private sector. Has the private sector done anything at all to reduce inequality in the region? Could you give us some specific examples? So for me, the answer is probably not in the sense that um, most of the private sector has a very traditional view of the things that we were discussing, right? So um, has never developed a win-win view of inequality of redistribution. It still has a view that um, basically as, as little as they pay, the, little, the less that they pay, the better. So it's hard for me to think about um, about the, the 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 private sector as a whole as being uh, a center for change. I think what is most important, uh, Fabrizio, and I don't know if both of you agree, you both work in, in political economy, is thinking about which parts of the business sector might have different types of incentives. Uh, this is very clear in the case of Brazil, right? In the case of Brazil, we, we have some parts of the business uh, sector that needs a deepening of the uh, domestic market to sell some of its products, while some other parts of the business elite that couldn't care less because it's either in mining or oil or soya or other activities. And I think how we try to break the coherence of the business elites of the private sector and how we try to have better communication with those parts of the elite that at least needs to depend domestic markets, it's something important and something that we haven't done nearly enough. You've just mentioned, Diego, uh, redistribution, something that the coronavirus pandemic brought, especially for Latin America, is this idea of universal basic income as a solution. Do you think this, this, this is a solution, some form of universal basic income uh, a solution for Latin America? So I think um, it's a complement, but it shouldn't be a replacement to to the, the welfare state more generally, right? So why do I say a complement? I do think that we know that we shouldn't just have targeted cash transfers, that there's a very significant part of the population, say the, to the bottom 60%, that lives with huge levels of uncertainty and volatility and vulnerability. And as you say, uh, Fabricio, the, the current crisis is showing that very well. And that supporting them with some cash transfer for all of them is extremely important. I think, however, this is the type of idea that we run the risk of thinking that it will do more than it actually can do. So for example, if we think that this is a replacement for high quality education or health, I think it will be a disaster because you will end up with a little bit of income but a huge segmentation in terms of the access to schools or access to hospital of different groups of the population. Um, so I think it's extremely important that we see it as a complement to the other big fight, which is how we improve the quality of some of these services. Diego, um, one of the consequences of being out here in the West Coast is um, 
to look at um, all these high-tech industries and the literal disappearance of labor unions. And um, I just wonder if in Latin America, there is still a role for labor unions in the regions um, in attempting to reverse uh, inequality. So I think yes, but they need to reinvent themselves. So yes, because clearly we have a lot of research that strong trade unions can increase the labor share and by increasing the labor share, put pressure. Yes, also because we know that some of the supporters of social policy and uh, uh, labor rights have been trade unions. But we also know that in some instances, when trade unions are only are relatively small and narrow and concentrated on either the private, the public sector or just the formal sector, they might actually be sources of inequality, right? You work a lot in Brazil, both of you much more and know the country much more. We know that the role of trade unions in terms of the pension system is somewhat problematic. So I think we need to strengthen uh, trade unions, but also trade unions that are able to link much better to what the literature called outsiders or the informal sector, right? And in countries like Bolivia, this has happened much more than I think that in countries like Brazil. So we need a stronger trade unions, but also trade unions that are able to reach uh, the informal sector and to expand the rights that those parts of the population don't have at the moment. There is um, growing interest in the literature on female leadership, especially political leadership, but also I think growing also on, on the business front, on the corporate um, front. And I wonder if female leadership has, uh, if you have evidence of positive impact on the reduction of inequality in the region so far. So I think we have relatively little um, work that shows a very direct causation between the two, right? Partly because it's difficult in terms of uh, econometric analysis for those that do econometrics, etc. So I don't think we have definite evidence. I do think that it's very clear that there's a whole set of channels through which this is important. Um, one is, uh, of course, the them as role models, which we shouldn't minimize, right? The role models to think about both income inequality, which we have talked about, but also gender inequality that links um, together. So um, gender and class uh, actually feed back into each other in Latin America in complex ways, as the work of uh, my colleague and friend Juliana Martinez-Franzoni, for example, have shown. So the verse is as role models. And the second is because they might put more emphasis in agendas that are very important for equality, such as the care agenda. And of course, the care agenda is extremely important after COVID-19. Um, so I, I think it's less about hardcore economics or hardcore taxation, et cetera, but much more about policies that have a clear gender dimension, plus the role model character of those. Um, Diego. You know very well Costa Rica and Dominican Republic, right? This is the, uh, the two you mentioned, just mentioned Giuliano Franzoni. So what's the state of inequality in those two countries? So um, they come from, sorry, from different directions in a way. Costa Rica, as many of our audience know, um, was one of the big successes until the 1980s in terms of uh, inequality and especially the development of a universal welfare social state, um, in particularly in the case of healthcare and education. 
but has struggled very significantly, as we were discussing before, after the 1980s, for a combination of reasons. One is that globalization led to the development of new activities around Intel and around um, other high-tech activities that created inequality. The other is that it's a country where the elite, and we were talking about the elite, has gained a lot of power in the last 10 to 15 years. So Costa Rica is a great example of what you should have, you should ha do in the past, but also all the dangers of globalization. The Dominican Republic is a much more complicated case because if you look at the data, actually inequality has gone down significantly, uh, but it's hard to believe. Um, and I think in a way, and the role, the work of Andres Rank, someone else in our circle uh, is important here is that you have a, a bad story and a good story. The bad story is that I think uh, the lead remains very powerful in the case of the Dominican Republic. The good story is that things are like labor rights have improved significantly, leading to a, the development of a stronger middle class. Um, and this leads me to something we haven't discussed, which is, I think we should always think about inequality in two fronts. One is inequality between the very top and the rest. And then the second is inequalities within the labor the labor groups, right? labor inequality. So in a way, I think in the Dominican Republic, we see more equality within labor, but still very significant concentration at the top. Could you develop a bit more the, the difference of the two inequalities you've just mentioned? You can use any, any example across the region. Absolutely. So, so let me actually, before I use an example from the region to think about the Gini. So um, in economics, we still, and political uh, science, we still use the Gini as the best indicator of inequality, but we use it partly because it's actually the same to redistribute income from the very, the, the poorest to the next group than redistributing from the middle class to another group within the middle class. So in that definition of inequality um, is everyone counts. It's about difference in income between any group in the population. I actually think that when we think about the political economy of inequality, the important thing is the concentration at the top. And it's important for its economic, but also because of a political consequences that we were discussing, right? Uh, the elite in El Salvador has huge ability to shape the tax policies, as Joseph was saying. So that's one, but of course, COVID-19 has also shown the importance of inequality between the very poor and the rest of the population. So in a way, I think we should not think about inequality as, oh, you are a little bit poorer or richer than me, but we should think about it as two key phenomena. One is the exclusion at the bottom, and the other is the huge concentration at the top. Diego, in your book, you refer to positive lessons from Latin America. Um, let's highlight two or three of these uh, most uh, positive lessons. So one, um, I think it's very exciting ideas that we don't always pay attention to. We know, well, all us, we do, but we haven't succeeded enough in making it successful for um, others. For me, of course, structuralism in economics is a key one. So um, the, the ideas coming from ECLAC in the past with Raul Previsch, but also today, had actually are extremely interesting in thinking about the world because they 
connect the economic structure with politics. It's interesting that Raul Previch was talking about the power of the elites well before Asemoglu and Robinson, but of course the Anglo-Saxon world has totally forgotten. So in a way, I think thinking about the richness of a structuralism to think not just about our region, but also to think about developed countries is extremely important. Um, Paulo Freire and what it tells us about how we should be developing our instit education institutions across the world is today more relevant than ever. And of course, those that are in pedagogy study it, but the rest don't know enough about him. And as we think about how to redefine our own universities, I think thinking about what me oppression means, thinking about how we give new understandings about race, etc., is extremely important. So it's interesting that we have, for example, Black Lives Matters without reading uh, Paulo Freire. I think those should actually be connected. And then in terms of, um, as I had said before, in terms of social movements, I think this is extremely important. So some of the most exciting social movements in the world take place in Latin America, and we should hear about them much more. And I think what is exciting about them, as I was saying before, and maybe I didn't develop the idea enough, is how they link the micro, the, the experience of the people in their everyday lives with the macro, the new understandings about development, right? So the landless movement is very clear. They were successful because they were solving a very specific need of Brazilian communities at the bottom, which is we need land and we need a different type of agriculture. But in doing that, they were able to start reimagining a different type of Brazil. I don't think that happens, for example, in my own country enough. So the Indignados, which we write a lot about, so I'm from Spain, um, were very exciting, but they never linked the, the, the demands of the needs of the middle class with a political project. And I think we need to learn much more from Latin America to think about other parts of the world. Great. Diego, and can I say one last thing, sorry. Go ahead, one last go thing ahead. on this. It's very interesting. When you think about um, Ocasio-Cortez, for example, in your country, Joseph, she's a very exciting politician, but the people around her always think that they are rediscovering the world, that they are the first ones talking about socialism, that they are the first ones talking about the problems of neoliberalism. Yeah. Those of us that know yeah. about Bolivia, they, yeah. Bolivians were talking about the problems of neoliberalism 20 years before Ocasio-Cortez and all of these movements. And we, yeah. need, we must force the left in the US and the left in the UK to read about Bolivia, to read about uh, the movements that were taken 20 years ago in Latin America, because that's when the ideas started, not now. And this sounds, Diego, what, what a senior colleague told me these days while we had a discussion with students about dependency, dependency theory, etc. Hoy Mauro Marini, Cardoso, etc. And um, when we finished the talk, the students were excited talking about this because we have to discover, uh, rediscover or um, revisit dependence theory. And when we finished the talk, the senior colleague came to me and said, well, millennials discovered Latin American political economy thinking, which is good, but at the same time, it's sad because this thing is, is out there for ages. And as you said, most of the Anglo-Saxon word ignore, 
or if I, if I can mention Diana Stasi recent chapter, misfit, misrecognize the knowledge coming from the region, which is, which is sad. Hopefully the millennials will discover it, listen to the podcast and, and be engaged. <laughs> I absolutely agree. And I, do, I don't know if you both agree, but I think uh, our section, but also LASA in general, has already is doing it, but has a responsibility of doing that even more, right? Of bringing Latin American ideas truly to the Anglo-Saxon academia much, much more than it's even doing now. That's why we're here. That's a great uh, point, Diego. Um, on a lighter note, we always end our show by asking our guests for um, a secret special recommendation in the region um, for whenever our members either travel uh, on vacation or especially on research. So looking at the region and your experience and all your travels, what would you recommend for, for our members? So um, you, you uh, did send me the, the question before and I should have thought, but I think it reveals how much of a boring academic I am that I don't have very exciting um, very exciting answers. Partly also I don't drink, which is another sign of, of the boringness. But having said that, so let me say one that people don't think about and then two that people think about, but I think they should think much more. So the one that they don't think about is all the um, areas around um, a, 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 all the, the Central Valley in Costa Rica. Uh, I go a lot to San Isidro de Heredia because that's where actually my co-author Juliana um, uh, lives. And this is a very uh, coffee area, um, but also extremely beautiful. But people that go to Costa Rica never go there, right? Because they go much more to the national parks, etc. So uh, spending a couple of days trying to just rent a car and traveling over the Heredia area, I think it would be extremely interesting. The, the second one, which is less, I mean, people know, but I don't think people know enough is um, the central, um, the, the historical center of Santo Domingo. So we know a lot about um, Antigua in Guatemala. We know a lot about uh, Cartagena in Colombia. And of course I love Cartagena, I have all times, but actually the center of Santo Domingo uh, has a few parts that are nearly as nice, but you never don't you never think about it, right? Because when people go to Santo Domingo, they tend to just go to the beach. I think spending a little bit of time in the city, enjoying it, um, having some of the great food that is very different and very Caribbean, uh, it's something that I would encourage people to do in their way to um, to the to the beach in in the Dominican Republic. Great. Diego, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a fantastic conversation. We'll have to have you back. Let me remind everyone that the book is called The Costs of Inequality in Latin America, Warnings and Lessons for the Rest of the World by Bloomsbury. Congratulations on the book and for highlighting such an important topic, Diego. Thank you so much. It was so much fun to talk to you both and thank you for this initiative, which I think it's very, very important. Great. Diego, let me change, let me switch to Spanish. Muchísimas gracias. Un placer. Un gusto tenerte con nosotros hoy. And that's it for today's show. We'll be back again early next year with more episodes of The Corner Politics. In the meantime, please follow and subscribe to our social media channels and send us your comments and suggestions. 
See you in January. Stay well. Stay safe.